first and foremost is to say welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. It's a beautiful Sunday afternoon, 2 p.m. Um, I'm here today with my friend Ty Helmer. Helmer, right? Yes, sir. Just want to make sure I'm saying it correctly. Ty, welcome to the corner. It's so good to have you here. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. We've been talking about having you come on in, in, for a while now. Um, yeah. And finally, we're making it happen. You are in a trailer right now. Where? Uh, up near Carpinteria, which is nice. right around Santa Barbara area. I've been camping with my youngest son. Nice. Okay. Well, this is Recovery Podcast. We talk about all things recovery or lack thereof. And I know that you're a man of recovery. Um, I know you've been sober, what, four years now? Yes, sir. Okay. First and foremost, I want to learn about Ty. Where did you grow up? Uh, where are you from originally? Where'd you grow up? And then we'll get into other stuff. But uh, who, who's Ty Helmer? Who's Ty Helmer? Well, I'm, uh, I'm me. You know, I, I actually grew up in Covina, uh, not far from the 502 Club. 502 Club. Anyways, uh, yeah, grew up in Covina. Um, you know, came from a fairly average home. Uh, my parents both worked. My mom had a, a pizza place when I was young. I played all kinds of sports. And, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Then we moved. They, they separated it when I was 12, and then we moved to Laverne. Um, mm -hmm. Grew did did most some of my high school in Laverne, uh, some of it at Rosemead. Where my parents divorced at that point, and um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, How old were you when they got divorced? Ah, uh, they separated when I was twelve. I believe they divorced divorced when I was fourteen. <laughs> and did that mess with you, or were you fine with it? No, that that was train wreck. That was a huge focal point in my life. That that. Um, you know, I, every time I talk about recovery, nothing makes you an alcoholic or a drug addict. But I do believe that there's things that happen that um, that play, they have an impact on you. Uh, and that was definitely one of them. So did this make you, how old were you when you first started drinking? Uh, well, that's a whole nother story. Um, so my mom owned her pizza place and, uh, I was a, I was a smart ass young man who knew everything and the kids that worked for her, she used to let them, uh, party in the back of the pizza place after they were closed. And, uh, they thought it would be fun to get the owner's eight year old son plastered one night. So I not only had like my first drink, but I was drunk and passed out on the floor throwing up at eight years old. That was eight my years first. old. Eight years old. That was my first experience with a drunk. Was it beer? It was. <laughs> it was. Okay. And then, um, and that just progressed or did it, were you just like a regular drinker right away or just drinking here and there? No, you know, I, uh, it took me a long time to get to the point where I could identify with certain things, certain aspects of an alcoholic. And um, I, I had alcoholic tendencies and feelings um from the get-go from as long as i can remember um the separation you know separatism or um wanting to be a part of all these different things and <clears throat> i was uh an excessively adventurous kid so i i mean i think i tried cigarettes at five and you know i stole one of my grandpa's cigarettes and then uh my dad would have people over to they would work on cars and stuff and i'd steal sips off of his beer but after that drunk um, 
a couple of things happened for me. One, uh, I liked the way it felt until I was throwing up, obviously. And then uh, two, it made me feel a part of because these were all older, um, like late teenage years, early 20s kids. And all they ever did was give me crap because I was the owner smart ass kid. And at that point, I felt a part of, I felt that camaraderie. And um, it was pretty much off and running from that point forward. Every time I, I could get a hold of liquor, I drank and started trying outside issues at 10. In other words, when you say outside issues, do you mean drugs? I mean drugs. <laughs> what I mean, kind of drugs were I, you doing? Stoned off my ass at 10 years old. And then uh, I think I was 12 when I first started, first tried cocaine. Oh, okay. And then, then what happened? And uh, I chased the high and the, and the feeling of camaraderie. Um, Three years. That was, that was my life story. I was, uh, I was in, I moved, I got moved from, uh, it back to back up. I was in fourth grade. They tested me for, um, my intelligence level. And, uh, back in, back in the 1800s where I grew up, you know, actually it was the 1970s. Uh, they had a program called mentally gifted minors, the MGM program. And that was the predecessor um, to the gate program, which I think is pretty what people call it now. Anyway, so they pulled me out of my, my normal grade school and put me in a special cool school for smart kids. And uh, that was a whole train wreck in itself. Why? Um, because you cross intelligence with rebellion and you just get a messed up kid. Oh, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> so, so let me get this straight. You, you were living in Laverne, but before that you were from where? Covina? Yeah. If people don't know where that's at, that's kind of like, that's not the IE, but it's like on the way to the IE. It's sort of still LA County, right? Yeah, that is LA County. It's, it's like, it's not the high desert. It's not even the desert yet, but it's like, it gets hot out there in the summertime and it's, it's a little bit east of Los Angeles. It's a little bit north of Orange County. Yes, exactly. All right. So they they just knew that you were gifted, like you were talented, you were smart, and they put you into that type of program, and you were already actively using and drinking? Yeah. When did it become a problem? Well, after your parents divorced, did you go off the Richter? Yeah, pretty much. That was, uh, that was when I started doing pretty much anything I could get my hands on. We were, that was when, I don't know, huffing was real big back then so we were doing that and uh that was like when crack started so we were doing that i like i tried pretty much everything on purpose except for heroin and pcp but i ended up trying pcp on accident a couple of times and that was that was uh i didn't want to do those because i had friends that did those drugs and they said look if you if you do these and you're in a mentally screwed up spot you're gonna have a bad trip and i was in a perpetually mental <clears throat> perpetually screwed up mental spot for a long time. So I didn't want to try them. And, uh, the one time I, I, um, uh, inadvertently tried or smoked a, a, a bunch of marijuana that was laced with PCP. I ended up in convulsions on the floor, bashing my head on, on a brick fireplace. So I don't know if that's normal for PCP use or not, but. PCP takes you in all different directions. It definitely is a, 
a drug to be reckoned. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me ask you this question. So when you said you, um, the 70s, you were talking about that. What year were you born? 68. Okay, so you're a few years older than me. You're 53? 52. 52 years old. All right. So during that time, obviously, was there a heroin craze? Was there kids doing heroin or was it not even that popular around where you were at? You know, I didn't really hear about it, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. I know we moved from Covina to Laverne uh, after my eighth grade graduate, the summer after my eighth grade graduation. So I believe I was between 13 and 14. My birthday is in December. So it was the summer before I turned 14. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember starting to hear about um, more stuff like that. Like heroin okay. use. Yeah. Heroin. yeah. But that was never your get down. No, sure wasn't. Okay. And then, uh, so what, into your young adulthood, 18 and over, what was life like? Life was one big party. Uh, like everything in my life revolved around my drinking. Party. And uh, yeah, and you know, it, it's interesting because I, I, I hear the term alcohol purist and, you know, the other term trash can. And, and I really fell in between. I didn't actively seek out drugs. I loved alcohol. I loved the way it made me feel. Um, mm -hmm. But I sure as hell wasn't going to turn anything else down if I was at a party and it was offered. And uh, I don't know, you know, my dad, um, my dad had opened up a health club in Rancho Cucamonga. And I mm -hmm. managed that from the time I was 18 till I was about 21. Um, inadvertently getting fired because I was drinking there every night uh you know at a health like, club yeah not, nothing like having the manager of the health club with a vodka and tonic behind the counter trying to sell you a membership yeah and you probably were selling it anyway no doing I would. Good, pro pro probably doing a good <laughs> job of that so so during that time um i know that you have five kids right mm -hmm. uh how old were you when you first started having kids young i was 26 when i had my first son Okay. Okay. So that's kind of like an average age to start thinking yeah. about having kids. So basically like between 18 and 26, it was just party central. And then, uh, during when you were 26, what did you, were you married? Did you have your first kid with a wife or just, did you just have a kid? So here's what happened. <laughs> um, so I was in my early twenties and, uh, my, my 20 and 21, <clears throat> and I had been in a relationship for about two and a half years. And, uh, you know, I was in an alcoholic relationship, so I wasn't the best guy. And uh, she drank a lot, too, or whatever. But we had done okay together up to that point. And then um, I came home one, one uh, afternoon in early June of 1992. And uh, she says, I believe this was on a Wednesday. She says, I'm, I'm going to my uncle's in, in Huntington Beach for the weekend. And I said, all right, cool, whatever. So she leaves, comes back home that Sunday, and she's all tan and whatever. And she walks in and says, uh, we're breaking up. You're an alcoholic. And I'm like, I, you know, not shocked, but kind of that what? And she says, uh, I actually didn't go to my uncle's. I went on a river rafting trip um, with some people from AA, and you're an alcoholic. And that was a crushing blow to me because – you know, even though I knew the truth, I mean, we were 16, 17 years old as kids, 
drinking, laughing, going, oh, yeah, we're alcoholics, you know, but I, and I never really believed it. I was a functioning alcoholic. I went to work even though I got fired. You know, I still right. showed up for stuff even though I didn't show up half the time. Kind of that mentality of, um, you know, lying to myself because I wanted to be what I couldn't be at that point. Anyway, so uh, about that was on a that was on a Sunday. The following Saturday, so I moved back into my mom's house, right? And uh, and you were how old at this time? Pardon me. How old were you at at this time? Twenty two. Okay. So the following Sunday, I wake up uh, hungover because I had partied Saturday night. And I started thinking about what that girl had said. You're an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic. And I went, Jesus Christ, maybe I really am an alcoholic. And uh, I was all broken up over the loss of relationships. So I looked up Alcoholics Anonymous and I literally walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous um, June 14th of 1992. Okay. So that was your first experience with a recovery-based 12-step program. Yep. So what happened? I did the deal and stayed sober for 10 years. Are you kidding me? I did not know that. Yeah. I was sober for 10 years between 92 and 2002. Did everything that I was supposed to do, everything that was suggested until I got well at about nine years sober. Um, what does that mean till I got well at about nine years sober? Because if you said that you did everything that was suggested and you were doing the deal, does that mean let's say that in a 12-step program, you worked all 12 steps, you had an awakening? No, that means that after nine years, I got uh, I got too busy for Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, complacent. Quit, quit doing, yeah, complacent, exactly. And quit doing what was suggested. So what happened? Well, the company I was working for moved me up to uh, Central California. I was running a, a division of an energy management company out of the Bay Area and uh, was married at that time. So when I say I have five sons, my oldest technically is from the marriage that I'm going to talk about right now. Okay. <clears throat> and then I had one before two. So I had those two. Then I had two with her. And the next one comes down the road. Anyway, so we had moved up to the Bay Area, had, you know, uh, this company put all their faith in me to run their $8 million division of their company, helped us get a house. Um, you know, the whole, the whole get down that all that material crap you get when you're, when you're showing up. And, uh, right. I had taken off in, in June of 2002 to have back surgery. And my wife took a job, uh, three months later, caught her cheating on me, uh, had back surgery, December 27th of 2002, Got a separated from her in February of 2003 and inadvertently lost my job in uh, June of 2003 due to not being able to function through all of this chaos that was going on in my life. So then uh, the back surgery, did they give you pain meds? Yeah, but I had, uh, once I caught my wife drinking, I, I backing up, once I caught my wife cheating um she was having an affair with her wow. boss uh that kind of pushed me to the edge because i didn't have any program once i moved up to the bay area um there was i so i lived in a small town called tracy and uh it's just it's right near modesto anyways 
there was only like one meeting in that town and it was a Spanish speaking meeting. And I was super swamped with work trying to get this division of this company up and going and just literally failed to do what I was supposed to do. I failed to seek out Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, because of the distance, I had let go of my sponsees that were down in Southern California. And when that happened between my back and uh, and uh, I was never a pill guy. So like they had prescribed stuff for me, but I took it even in my sobriety. Exactly. as it was prescribed and they give me a prescription of 30 you know, Vicodin and I would have them three months later because I just didn't, I wasn't a pill guy. Plus I was trying to do, you know, be a sober member. Um, mm. But anyways, when all that happened, it, it was just too much for me because I didn't have any, I had, I had closed the toolbox. Let's just say. Okay. So, so you're off to the races again and that lasted for how long? 15 years. My God. And did it get really bad during that 15 years or were you doing some controlled drinking? I was, um, I was attempting to do controlled drinking, mm -hmm. but it was a matter of, I'm an alcoholic and I don't, th I think, gosh, I really gave some effort to, to not drink, to, to controlling it, not to not drinking, but to controlling it. And I think the longest in 15 years I ever lasted was about six days. To not and drink. To not drink. What and would then, happen during those six days? Were you going through DTs, uh, delirium tremens, uh, hallucinating, I, anything like that, alcohol poisoning? I would go crazy. I mean, there was, there was times that I was so agitated. I remember leaving work one day. Um, and I think I was even actively like on a daily basis drinking, but I remember leaving work one day, told my guys I'd be back. And, uh, I was so, you know, like call it rest, restless and irritable and discontent. And I was so wound up over nothing. I just, I couldn't like, I needed it. And I, right. I left, left work, went to the bar and drank all the way through to the next day and ended up like my guys didn't know what was going on. They're calling me. I'm ignoring them. Um, the client was pissed off, never did go back and finish that job. Just, you know, stuff like that was, that was kind of an extreme for me because I've always been real business minded and tried to make sure that I did what I was supposed to do as far as my clients. But there wasn't a, a day that went by that I was not like actively in my head about drinking. I, I, I needed it. So alcoholism was starting to get in the way of the workplace. It was starting to get in the way of everyday life. You couldn't function normally. Um, a lot of people talk about, I was a functioning alcoholic, but how does one function when internally they're falling apart, you know, and then they're also drowning, drowning it all out with alcohol, you know? Yeah. And that's what it is. It's, it's a matter like, it's, it's like the exterior, because I had done what, you know, been in business for a long time and done that the exterior, I could go through the motions, but there was no quality to anything I do. You know, I, I'd show up on a job site and half-assed stuff and, I really don't even know how I kept my business afloat for, for the years that I was actively drinking. Mm -hmm. Now you've sent me some pictures and I'm just going to put it up here to the camera. Hold on. Um, if anybody sees this, let's see, let's try to hold on. So you're laying in a hospital bed. Hold it there. There's stuff on your chest. Um, I see right here, this, 
what the hell is going on here? How did all this happen? Well, that was, uh, that was a really bad weekend. So, um, I had, I had had my fifth son and, and, uh, his mom and I split up a couple of years later. I met a girl and, uh, you know how I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize, but I meet somebody and it's like, Oh, this is the one, you know, I fell madly in love with this girl. And, uh, we lasted about three years. I moved her, moved her in. She lived in Maui. I moved her in from Maui and, uh, you know, I had told her my past and, and these failed relationships and why they had failed. And, and, uh, about three years later, we were just not getting along. You know, it was bad. And one night I'm laying in bed and I woke up and I, something told me to check her phone. And I'm not that guy. Like I had never looked at her phone in the three years we were together and open her phone up. And there's some lewd pictures from another guy. And uh, so we have this big blowout and I was heartbroken. You know, I, I because it's all about me, <laughs> not no mention of any of my behaviors, but it's all about me. And, um, so she moved out and I went on a bender that was just horrid. It, uh, I don't think I drew a sober breath from June. This is 2016. Those pictures are fun from, uh, June of 2016 until the end of October. And, uh, so those pictures are from um, June 23rd, 2016. I had uh, I had gone out the night before with a buddy of mine who's a, actually a detective from Maui, and he was doing a he was at a, a, a reunion, whatever. And this is right in our hometown, mm-hmm. and uh, we drank and everything was good, you know. And we left, and he was staying at my house, and uh, we stopped and picked up a bottle of Jack Daniels on the way home, and. Got to my place, and I think I had one drink, went to bed, and I woke up at, I don't know, 6.30 in the morning, and the girl and I started going back and forth, and uh, I started pounding that bottle of Jack Daniels, and um, next thing I remember, I'm firing off a round out of my 45 into my ceiling, and uh, it's really weird because I have processed this so many times because I, you know, we give these talks and, and it's replayed and, and, uh, I, I, I don't know. It's a trip. So I fired off around for my 45 into my ceiling. My buddy comes up and he's like, you know, freaks out and he leaves. And, uh, about I don't know, 30 minutes later, Cops were beating on my door, and I was not coming out. Um, long story short, I had barricaded myself in my home and uh, was either going to kill a cop or die by suicide by cop. I had become homicidal and suicidal and uh, was done with everything. I remember sitting on my floor in my bedroom and put my forty-five in my mouth, <clears throat> and I couldn't pull the trigger. But uh, I knew that somebody was going to die that day. And I remember justifying, like, all of my kid going through my mom. My mom will be okay. My dad will be okay. You know, all of my sons will be okay. And uh, 
then at one point, and th th I don't remember all of this. This is coming from the detectives who uh, did an investigation afterwards. At one point, I had um, I had my 45 and I had an AR-15, and I crawled out on my. I had a balcony outside my bedroom that was about 16 by 30, and perched across from me was the exact same uh, floor plan. Looking back at me, and we lived in these condos, <clears throat> and the balconies are about 15 feet apart. Right. I, I had crawled out on my balcony under cover of the the edge of the balcony and i don't remember pointing my weapons at the swat team that was adjacent to me but uh i stood up and i i remember having my 45 in my right hand pointing down and my ar in my left hand but i stood up and as soon as i crested that that uh balcony wall i got i hear pop and i got hit in the chest and uh hit me but I, like i put my fingers inside my chest it was a pretty interesting situation um so i, I grab my chest and i'm standing there and i look at the cop i hear i hear him say got him and i look across at the cop and uh i go i can't fucking believe you shot me oh my and, and god then I, <laughs> then I collapsed to my knees and uh as soon as i hit my knees swat came in from behind me they were i guess had breached the house and whatever and um, one, one cop runs up and pushes me forward and says, what else are you on? And, I, and the bottle of Jack Daniels was just sitting behind me. I said, nothing, just that, just that. And then another cop comes over and he squats down to the right of me and puts his hand on my shoulder. And I looked him in the face and I said, so this is how it ends. I'm never going to see my kids again. And I think between God and that one sentence, uh, that's what saved my life. I think at that moment they had a little bit of compassion for me um, and tried to help me instead of, I mean, I have a lot of friends that are cops and uh, several letter SWAT and I'm not supposed to be alive right now. They don't usually even shoot for the chest. Uh, Especially because you were armed. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point I, I do remember um, pulling, I had a treadmill just to my left. I remember pulling myself up on my treadmill and, uh, kind of walking towards my sliding glass door to my bedroom and uh and then i collapsed and then uh i've actually acquired some of these odd uh like photographic memories from different things i were i remember um remember going down the stairs on the gurney and i'm claustrophobic and i remember them having me all strapped down and uh going down upside down with my head down on the gurney you know like going down the stairs head down i remember that um, uh, I remember being in the helicopter going to USC, uh, and everything's, everything's kind of blurry from that point on. I, I, I was in and out of consciousness and, and, uh, I had, I had finished that bottle of Jack Daniels. So between being shot and shock and, and the alcohol, I, you know, I don't remember a whole lot. There's not a lot of detail. Right. So wow i mean i felt your emotions definitely in what you told that cop um i i'm sitting here trying to just gather it all in my mind and think to myself he's been cheated on by his wife he was he had he caught his other girl it, it seems like there was a pattern there it can you can definitely victimize yourself in that and make it an excuse to drink but then again who knows the behaviors that were behind them wanting to be with other people you know right. like you never sure. know it could be it could have just been you in alcoholism 
regardless of the fact I, I, um, that it's very powerful, like to, to see that you, you'd already been in the program before and then to go back out and just to see how alcoholism has no limitations. It has no mercy when, it, when you're in it and you're engulfed in it, it gets you. And it, it seems like it just has you by the neck and there's no getting out unless you really decide to quit. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, the statement, it gets worse, never better. I'm a living testament to that. And, and I think there's a lot of people out there that are, but, Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's not some cute little statement that we just say in the rooms. It's it it really does get fucking worse. Absolutely. I mean, I never I never hear about people that come into recovery that their lives were totally fucked up, and then they come and they get some recovery, and they you know put some recovery under their belt, and then all of a sudden they go back out and they come they come back and say it was great, it was wonderful, everything was right. good. You know, right. no, it's all it becomes a shit show, a complete shit show. And the fact that you lasted for fifteen more years out there just drowning, you know, I'm sure just drowning in it. Right. It, but for know, it to end like that, that just, that says a lot. It's a, it's an amazing thing because so the pictures you saw are, are from, um, November, about November 26th, about November 26th ish. I, I, I had, uh, you know, I, I was, so in my own head over everything, I wouldn't let anybody come see me at the hospital. I have, like I said, I have a lot of police friends and they saw it. They knew when there's a, a an officer involved shooting. So like all the departments of Omani, Los Angeles, San Bernardino, all the, my sheriff buddies, they all knew that it was me, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't let anybody come. The only per people that I allowed to come to the hospital were my mom, my dad, my, and my stepmom. Uh, my two sisters did come one time and then ironically my youngest son's mom and him. And, uh, I was so ashamed, you know, there's so many awesome terms in, that I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And, and like, gosh, you felt that I, I, I oh man, I, it was just a, I felt it a lot, but yeah. at that point, I could not face anybody. I couldn't face anybody. I was so destroyed inside and so embarrassed. And you know, it's like my friends looked up to me because I was—I'm a bigger guy, you know—and they look up. To oh, me. I noticed you're—you're you're pretty well-built guy. The, the the tough guy, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And me to get taken out by people that like I I admire and look up to, you know, I'm like, huh. blue and uh, yeah, it's just amazing. It's amazing the feelings that we go through. Okay, so that scar that's across your chest, I mean, th those are stitches I saw, right? Yeah, I had, um, so I was in 13 hours, I think 13, 12 or 13 hours of surgery. That So that, that incident happened on, on um, October 23rd, 2016, and I was in 12 or 13 hours of surgery that night, and then they stabilized me. Um, I actually died in the hel helicopter on the way there, and then I died on the table, and they were able to resuscitate me both times. Uh they had a, they had a, they actually had a doctor, the ER doctor from the hospital fly with me in the helicopter to keep me alive going to USC. And wow. then, so I died in the helicopter, died on the table, um, 12 hours of surgery. And that was on Sunday. And then Tuesday they went back in and, um, I did another eight or 10 hours of surgery. And so what happened was when they, when the cop shot me, the SWAT guy shot me, the bullets entered from the side and there was two rounds 
which I thought were two, two, three, but I later found out they were five, five, six rounds, which was a pretty damaging bullet. Right. Um, so the bullets hit my, my heart, my lungs, my liver, my kidney. It like just, just shredded my insides. Uh, so they had to, that scar goes from one side all the way across to the other and down. And it's called like a clamshell something or other. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Right. But, uh, yeah, so I lost half a lung. Um, and that's, aside from, they had to cut my complete chest cavity off. So, like, they do, a, like, an open heart surgery. They split you down the center and pull your ribs back. Well, mm-hmm. mine were shattered on this side, so they cut the whole thing off and then uh, put it back together with little wires. So my whole chest plate is kind of one piece. I don't really have ribs anymore, which mm-hmm. is really odd to kind of lean against things. It's strange. But, uh, yeah, so they at day 10 in the ICU, uh, I kept telling them I wanted to go home and and – they had given me some criteria that I had to meet before I could go home. And then I got an infection that they couldn't cure. And, uh, I started declining again and then they, uh, did a culture of this infection and actually created an antibiotic to kill it. Um, wow. That was on day. I think that happened on day 12 or 13 on day 12, maybe. And then they, uh, you know, they told me there was a couple of things I had to do before I could leave. Um, one of them being walk around the entire nurse's station, which obviously isn't very far, but it was pretty far for a guy who hadn't been out of bed in 16 days or 17 days. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I, I did those things and they sent me home. I, I think I came home on the 18th day, 17th day I was in the hospital, 18th day I came home and then I rehabbed myself. Um walking from like I, I was at my back to my mom's right you know where we go when we're when we're down and out run to mom's right. but uh i rehab myself walking from the couch i was sleeping on the couch to the bathroom back and forth then the couch to the front door and then out the front door down the driveway and uh so you walk go out my mom's front door and you make a right go down the driveway it was a fourplex of condominiums and then you make another right and there's a school well if right. you make a left there's a bar and uh, 12 days after I got out of the hospital, uh, you know, I was in the hospital and it was great because they had me full of morphine and Norco and I didn't really feel anything. And that, that, right. that discomfort hadn't kicked in yet. But uh, 12 days out of the hospital, instead of making a right and walking towards the school, I made a left and walked right back into the bar and continued to drink. So you fucking drank after all this? Drank. I couldn't, I couldn't not drink. I, I was a train wreck inside. Okay. So the pictures that you say were in November, correct? Mm-hmm. What happened after you drank? How much longer were you out? Uh, about six months. So from that incident, I picked up a felony, uh, a felony case and inadvertently was sentenced to a year in sober living. I have a good, I have a feeling I know which sober living. one of the best la puente house right i love them i i i believe in them they're good good people good philosophies good good teachings over there i'm so happy my one of my dearest mentors actually used to do groups there oh yeah yeah um 
and I know the owner, and I know you know the owner very, very well. Um, so you were sentenced to sober living rather than having to go to prison or jail, correct? Yeah, they wanted me to do eight years uh, in prison, and my attorney ended up getting me uh, getting me sentenced to the pointy house. Okay, so this is the part that really matters to me a lot. I mean, all of that gnarly, gnarly, like, wow, I'm blown away. But did you, how long into your sentence in sober living, <laughs> did you take this fucking shit seriously? What, what, where was the shift in perception and behavior and attitude? You know, I, uh, I drank the night before I checked myself into the pointy house. Of course you did. <laughs> and I got there the next day and I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to try and get sober. And, uh, as you know, with sober livings, there's mandatory meetings. And it was the strangest thing. Cause I got sober in Glendora, which is like seven minutes from Kavina, but I had never been to Kavina in all the years that I, did meetings up in Glendora. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you honestly, Paige, from my heart, when I walked into that meeting, that first meeting back, I sat down in the chair. I knew I was home. Hmm. I knew that it was a place that I should have never left. I knew that I would find love and compassion there and help and the answers to my problems I don't know. You know, I knew I was home. And that's it. You just took it. You took it by the horns. I jumped in with both feet and my heart and soul. You know, they say do 90 and 90, 90 meetings in 90 days. I was doing 35, 30 to 35 meetings a week for a year. Good. Good. I think it was around that time I probably met you too. I believe so. I believe you spoke there um, with a couple other people. I think I had like three months sober. Yeah, I think it was that one where we four of us go and exactly little, little talks. Yeah, and I remember when I met you, I thought, "What this guy has a good spirit about him. He's a nice guy. He's well built." After all the shit that happened with the SWAT team and you having to recuperate, I mean, you're a pretty built guy. Did you? You're resilient. Like, are you able to still lift? Because you look like you're in great shape. I. Do you know, I, uh, yes, the, the answer to the question is yes. I, I just, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> when I was making amends to my, one of my sons, he lives, <clears throat> lives out of state, lives in Michigan. I was making amends to my boy and we were actually together for his brother's graduation from the Navy Academy. Mm -hmm. and I, so my, not the one in the Navy, but the other one, we're driving back. Uh, to, to my hotel so I could drop him off so he could get in his car and go home. And mm -hmm. I'm making amends to him. And he says, dad, you know, the only thing that, um, that kills me is you're the one who's always said, never quit. You're the one who always preached, never give up. And you gave up. And that's just how I am. I, I don't know why I'm God built me to be a person that doesn't quit. I don't give up. And I've, I've suffered some, some, uh, you know, physical issues since being shot because I pushed so hard to keep myself in shape. And 
like the last couple of years with COVID, I've really slacked off, but I just started back again. And, and uh, you know, it's, there's, there's no competition like competition with yourself. Absolutely. We're our own worst enemies and critics. Absolutely. Oh, you're a beautiful man. You're, you're such a kind soul. I, I, all of this that you're describing, like I, it's interesting. I, I don't, I don't, I would have never known. I would have never known until you told me. And, and it's funny, like I, the lifestyle I have right now, a lot of people often tell me like when they hear my story or they hear about how fucked off I was, they're like, you, I could never picture that with you. I'm like, you have no idea. Right. <laughs> you have no idea. Um, yeah. I was worse than even what I could even describe it, you know, and not just worse on the, on the outer appearance. It's about what was going on on the inside. And so it's so nice to see you, you're taking this thing seriously and it's a beautiful thing. And now you have a construction company. Is that something that started in recovery? Uh, no, I actually started that when I was uh, a couple of years after I had gone out back in 2006 Okay. So during the time that you were like in the sober living and all that, was the company kind of running itself or were you still working there? Uh, I was still able to work there. I think everything had, I, I mean, I lost everything. I lost my home. I lost everything when all of this happened. And uh, the only thing that kind of hung on was, was my company. I, my, uh, I had a couple of good employees and then two of my sons stepped in to help as well. So they kind of kept it afloat uh, until there was, and it was only a few week period between when I was shot, they did that. And then when I checked in and wasn't allowed to, to work and stuff. And then um, it just really got scaled back. I mean, like I was doing next to nothing, but it was enough to get me by and to keep the name out there and stuff. And, and uh, yeah. So. And how's life now? Are you, you're obviously present in your son's lives, right? Oh, absolutely. They're everything to me. I'm, I'm so extremely blessed. I just, go ahead. you are so lucky to be alive after that cop shot you. It was, it was one shot, right? It was two, two shots. You are so lucky. I mean, really God, God saw a purpose for you to live. You know, I believe that with all my heart and soul and whatever that is, whether it's to, you know, be a service in Alcoholics Anonymous and help one man or, you know, give somebody a job or whatever it may be. I'm good with that. As long as I can continue to help people and, uh, you know, be, be an example for people that may see something like this, you know, it's never too late to change your life ever. Never, ever. You're right. And you still are, uh, do you still volunteer at the Puente house? You know, all of the COVID stuff really shut that down, but I actually, so Carl is my sponsor. I don't know if you're mm -hmm. aware of that. Uh, yes. but, uh, I actually just talked to him, uh, this last week and, and said, Hey, I need to, I need to be more involved. I'm like, what can I do? Well, what, you know, so hopefully there'll be something that comes up here in the near right. future, open up some of their daytime meetings that I can squeeze in and, and get in there and do that. Awesome. 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 Well, this has been powerful. It's been a great experience to, to hear about you and, and see what all you've been through. I, I believe that's, you know, we titled this transformation through alcoholism you know the miracles i mean it's truly a miracle that you that you are where you are right now in your life you know forget really, about forget about getting shot it's about you know you're already dying inside absolutely so, the you physical know, I, doesn't matter so much when you're when the when the spiritual is obsolete i talk about that all the time you know it's all of our stories are unique 
but they're just stories. What brings us together and unifies us as alcoholics and drug addicts is the feelings that we've experienced during our, you know, during our downfalls. Um, and I truly think that that is, is why these programs work, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. I love it. I love it. And I love you. And thank you for coming on, uh, on the podcast today. It's been so good to hear from you and I will keep in touch with you. We need to hang out. You're, you're my type of dude. Like, Page, I like hanging out with guys like you. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, absolutely. You let me know when and where and I'll be there. Okay, wonderful. Awesome. Have a good rest of your Sunday. And it was good having you on and talk to you soon. Thank you, brother. Take care.